Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. In the hundred to which Middlemarch belonged, railways were as exciting a topic as the Reform Bill or the imminent horrors of cholera, and those who held the most decided views on the subject were women and landholders. Women, both old and young, regarded travelling by steam as presumptuous and dangerous, and argued against it by saying that nothing should induce them to get into a railway carriage while proprietors were unanimous in the opinion that in selling land, whether to the enemy of mankind or to a company obliged to purchase, these pernicious agencies must be made to pay a very high price to landowners for permission to injure mankind. Now that is George Eliot in Middlemarch, first published in 1870, but looking back 30 or 40 years earlier to the arrival of the railways in Middle England. Tom Holland, the railways, what an amazing subject. I mean, transformative moment in Victorian history and indeed in, well, in all modern history, you might say. Well, I mean, there are times where um, you, you find that uh, there's been some accident or a train's been cancelled or there's a strike and a replacement bus has been laid on <laughs> and um, all, the, all the all the toilets are the worst shut words in the English language, and, rail replacement and, bus. And it's just miserable. And you curse the railways. But then you you think about the romance of it and the the just the sheer kind of uh excitement of of this. So so um Eric Hobsbawm compared the invention of the railways to the harnessing of the atom. That this was yeah. a, a you know, that, that these were comparable kind of explosions of human ingenuity and what it opened up in terms of industry and ability to to kind of transform the world it's fair enough, um, and we had a we had a we had a question about that olioko was the birth of the railways the most significant development in ushering in the modern world and you know it, it it's definitely up there with i mean obviously the printing press a few centuries earlier maybe later the telegraph yeah. Do you not think, Tom? Well, I do, I do. Um, and of course, one of the, one of the things that gets, um, any, uh, British heart swelling is that this is a great British invention. But, Hurrah. but, but one it? might almost say a Northumbrian invention. Oh. And so, um, in the awareness of that, there was really only the one guest that we could ask to come on and talk about it for us. Um, and, uh, he is sitting in Newcastle as we speak, wearing a Victorian capitalist's hat. So he looks like Very Isambard King Ronald. It's the one and only Dan Jackson. Good evening, Dan. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you? <laughs> Very well. Very well. <laughs> Very Dan, well. I think every, all our guests from now on should wear hats. Think, <laughs> Appropriate I mean, hats. It's, thematic. it's such a shame the listeners don't get to see this hat. because You really do look like the absolute image of a, of a sort of, to be honest, you look a bit more to me, US railroad robber baron. Yes, 
Yes, that's a good point. I was thinking Brunel, but I'll go with that. Yeah, that's well, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> stovepipe, well, stovepipe top hat. Well, do, do you know, I've just taken a screenshot, so I'll put that up as um, <laughs> as part of our Twitter advertisement. Um, but so, so Dan, um, author of the Northumbrians, brilliant, brilliant local history of the history of the Northeast. Uh, and Dan came on pretty much this time last year, wasn't it, to talk about um, the regions in England. Uh, so, so Dan, um, when I asked you, I thought that we were going to be focusing very much on the Northumbrian angle. Um, and I said to you, you know, how far do you want to go with, with the history of the railways? And you replied, I think it would be fun to do the origins of antiquity. You see, I didn't know that. I should have known that perhaps, but I didn't know that the origins of the railways lay in antiquity. Then the age of coal, then something on the cultural impact, maybe then the 20th century. So (laughs) what's left? (laughs) Nothing if not ambitious, which is obviously why you're wearing your Victorian capitalist hat. Yeah, well, it's a great story. It's a great romantic story, isn't it? And it's 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 something that changed the world. But obviously, inevitably... I argue that it's some of its key, <laughs> most important developments took place in the northeast of England. That's a stunning. That's a stunning <laughs> development. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? Okay, well, listen. So, so um, that that question um, that that I asked, do its origins lie in antiquity? I had no idea. Combined with, uh, we've got a question from Warren Allison, who asked, surely the birth of railways was when German miners in the mid fifteen hundreds brought over wooden wagonways uh, used underground in the lead and copper mines. So is it antiquity or is it uh, early modern Germany? Or is it neither of those? Well, I think um, it's th- th- there's multiple origins of this story. I think what people tend to focus on in the birth of the railway story is the, the steam engine. And we'll come on to that, definitely. But ob- obviously the rails, the tracks themselves were a key part of this story. And there are some key developments in the 19th century around uh, wrought iron technology and so on, which are absolutely crucial. But you know, the first um, use of a sort of trackway that you could say was the the precursor of the railway was in was in ancient Greece, uh, six hundred uh, BC. There was a was something called a diolkos, a paved trackway which transported boats across the isthmus of, of course, yes, across of course. Corinth. Um, so. This yes. people had been wrestling with the challenge of how do you move heavy objects across difficult terrain uh, for hundreds of years, and then a, a lot of this story is related to mining. And German miners certainly, we've got some records from the early 16th century where miners in Germany are using similar sort of trackways, even proto funicular railways up hills and so on to transport heavy mined goods, coal, stone, etc. Um, across difficult terrain. And then we start to see this appear in England and around the later 16th century, uh, um, yeah, later 16th century, where some German miners come over to Kaldbeck in um, in uh, Cumberland and they're working as miners there. So that's probably one of the first records of what became known as wagonways, which were the grooves initially, and then they moved on to be, become um, kind of wooden rails that kind of that guided pretty primitive trucks across them to carry heavy heavy goods and even in my part of the world southeast northumberland you see you see very very early wagonways in the uh, around 1605 outside blythe inevitably transporting coal and it, by the by the early 18th century these are proliferated to such an extent that they're well known around the country and they're known as newcastle roads dan i hate to do this to you 1605 
But in 1604, there is a funicular railway in Shropshire. Oh, no. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> Rosalie, which carries coal <laughs> for James Clifford from his mines down to the River Severn. So I think Shropshire... I don't I mean, think Wiltshire contributed to this at all. Well, Tom, I, I read online, Tom, if this will cheer you up, that there is some kind of trackway, a very a prehistoric trackway oh, in, in the Somerset Levels. Oh, good. Oh, good. Uh, in the Valley of the River Brew. Is this, is this, have you been researching the in the Bodleian again? This is in the, my, my close research that I do in the Bodleian <laughs> Library um, five minutes before the podcast. Uh, <laughs> oh, the River Brew, as in Bruton. As in Bruton, exactly. Oh, so anyway, you? anyway, Shropshire, clearly the place where the railways began, um, <laughs> steeped in, in railway history. But uh, I, I suspect, Dan, you may have a different take on um Because obviously, well, Shropshire, they also have plates, metal plates they use in Colebrookdale which is obviously the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, uh, in, <laughs> in, in Shropshire in the 1760s. But, Dan, I suspect you may have – I mean, I think probably maybe the fairest the, – the sensible thing to say, I guess, is that all across coal-producing areas of the British Isles, people are experimenting with different kinds of trackways, and they're using – what first, what, wooden? In yeah. The, what, what, what are we in the 18th century? I suppose in the 16th, 16th, 17th century, they're using wooden. And then mm -hmm. at what point do they move towards metal? Well, I, I think the first recorded iron rails were laid at, at, in Bath, actually, in the 1760s. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to be completely left out of this as a southerner. Yeah. Yeah. Bruton and Bath. Yes, yes. So, um, and, and as I said, the, the, the story of the, uh, the rails themselves is, is sometimes overlooked. And I think you get the the um, uh, a lot of kind of technological developments starting to come to a head in the early 19th century, which I think is, is arguably the key moment. Several places claim to have the first railways. We've explored some of them, um, but then it's the it's this uh, alignment of the uh, the rail the railway technology itself with steam engine technology you know Newcomen pioneered it in the early 18th century then James Watt in the later 18th century and the combination of steam engines and rails is when this story really starts because Dan you you mentioned um ancient Greece and railways but of course the ancient Greeks also had steam engines ah. which they in Alexandria they developed the principle of the steam engine and used it basically for for kind of exotic gimmicks in temples but there's a famous counterfactual written by Arnold Toynbee in his you know, multi-volume History of the World, where he imagines what would have happened had the Macedonians developed the steam engine. And he has a kind of vision, obviously influenced by the time he was writing what was happening with uh, with, with the British, of Macedonian steam engines. Yeah, armoured trains. Across, yeah, armoured armor, trains, armor going, trains going across Mesopotamia <laughs> to suppress re rebellions in Babylon. So <laughs> yeah. I, anyway, I, I, it's a kind of, you know, it's a what if, but I just throw that out that, that once again, because this is very in our time, isn't it? Everything begins with the Greeks. Oh, I think it began in ancient Greece. So anyway, I, sorry, I've interrupted there. So so, so the steam engine. So, yeah. so that's Cornwall as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, if you think about Trevithick, uh, but again, you mentioned not the word novelty there, Tom, and I think uh, with, with with the work of Trevithick, you've got um, uh, his. I think it's called Catch Me If You Can, uh, one of his one of his early steam engines. That so when is he? It. This is very early nineteenth uh, century, eighteen oh four. But it's seen as a novelty. People go on rides on it in London and so on, and it goes around a circular loop. 
and but we're still waiting for that technological breakthrough to really combine the rails and the steam engine in a in a really practical and commercially viable way. And where does I that think, happen? Well, I think the key the spur for this is war. Interestingly oh, enough, okay. the Napoleonic Wars causes a shortage of horses and causes a shortage uh, or a rise in the price of horse fodder. So people are looking for alternatives to horsepower because all these wagonways we've discussed were horse drawn. Um, that's how they worked. You even have things uh, called, uh, we'll come on to George Stevenson in a moment, but he invented the dandy wagon where you could, in places like the Northeast, you could utilize railways, just you could utilize gravity on railways to kind of go downhill. And he invented a dandy wagon to put the horse in a little cabin at the back <laughs> and to freewheel down the hill. And then the horse would be kind of, Harnessed up to pull the thing back up the back the hill on the other side, um, but it's 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 the spur of war. So you get some real breakthroughs around eighteen twelve. There's a, um, a, a a locomotive engine invented by a Newcastle man actually called Matthew Murray, but he's working in Leeds at the time. And this engine's called the Salamanca, named after the battle that had just taken place in the Peninsula War. And then you get Puffing Billy which is a further development in um, by William Headley on the banks of the Tyne at um, Killingworth. Again, it's it's connected to a colliery. How can we get this coal from the pithead out for export in the River Tyne? So, Dan, just to quickly clarify, um, these things are generally driven by coal. Yes. Is that right? So yes. that's why you need – I mean, almost all the instances we talked about, so the Trevithic – I mean, mm-hmm. he was Cornish, but his thing was developed for a colliery, I think, in Merthyr Tydfil. Yeah. So basically, had it not been... I mean, that's why it's Britain, right? Because yeah. of the coal, I guess. Is that is that right? Yeah, just the sheer volumes of coal that are being produced in Britain at the time and the, the challenge of moving this stuff around. I mean, there was some... The, the developments of canals and other parts of the country were part of that solution. It really takes off in the northeast because the topography in the northeast doesn't lend itself to canals very easily. We've got these navigable rivers, the Tyne and the Weir, where pretty much you could roll the coal down the hill uh, in most places and get it out for export to uh, the rest of the country and around the world. But the sheer volume of coal, the challenge of shifting that stuff, led to these led to these developments in in locomotion, and because you had the plentiful supply of the the fuel source uh, on hand. And this is when, when George Stevenson enters the scene. I think who is, is tell one us about of the, him. Well, he's. I think he's one of the great figures of um, of British history. And he's, he's he's an almost entirely self made man. In fact, Samuel Smiles, the you know, the great proponent of Victorian yeah. self help, wrote an incredibly um, uh, popular biography of him in the eighteen. Because he did a whole series of Lives of the Engineers, didn't he? Yes, and and Stevenson's seen as a bit of a paragon because he's born in a, a coal mining village called Wylam in the Tyne Valley. But usually his parents were illiterate, and, and he was himself until he taught himself to, to read and write at the age of 18. It was quite a literate area, actually. But nonetheless, George Stevenson, he entered the uh, mining trade like his father at a very early age. And one of Stevenson's first jobs in the pit is the almost laughably dangerous job, which is sometimes known as a fireman, or a, um, it was sometimes also described as a penitent which was because coal mines were extraordinarily dangerous with uh, flammable gases and there was always yeah. explosions killing people. Stevenson's job was to dress himself in damp rags and damp oh, clothing, God. go in with a lighted torch and ignite pockets of flammable gas. <laughs> that was his job. How old was he then? He's in his teens doing this. Oh, my God. So, so health and safety is not... Uh, no. Absolutely not. 
Um, but he got interested in, in steam engines because they were often used to pump out water. Pits were often flooding. And he's just one of these these guys that's sort of intuitively good at fixing stuff. He became known as an engine doctor because he had this kind of instinct on how to repair and fix. So he's like a tinkerer. Kind yes, of, exactly. Exactly. He, I, he reminds me a bit of my father. You know, he can kind of turn his hand to anything. That sort of one of those sort, sorts of guys. So he wasn't taught anywhere how to do this. He just kind of had this intuition to do it. And inevitably, he got interested in locomotive engines. And his first was in 1814, and it was called the Blucher, named ah. after the Prussian field oh, marshal. Right. So another link yeah. to, to, war, to warfare. Yeah, yeah. So this is when he starts the end it of the scene. turns late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. setting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how it would carry on. <laughs> But your point, Dominic, is absolutely right. The tinkering aspect in a lot of his early his early work on these locomotive engines was on how to um, what, what was the best weight distribution to ensure that the thing uh, that travelled along the rails. What was the best method of adhesion? Adhesion, you know, with, uh, with the, the engine and its um, and the trucks. Because that that's been um, uh, seriously proposed as a reason why Britain is the centre of the Industrial Revolution. Is that it had a culture of tinkering, mm. kind mm. of messing around, fiddling with stuff. Um, and fixing contraptions and things. So it's, it's appropriate that we're meeting, uh, discussing this in um, 2022 because it's the 200th anniversary of what was probably his, his major breakthrough in, in locomotive history is um, the Hetton Railway, which is just outside Sunderland. It's the birthplace of Bob Paisley, actually. And on the um, Paisley Gates at Anfield, They've got the the shield of Hetton, which is a small town in County Durham, and on the shield is a locomotive from that from that oh, period, goodness. and it's one of it's one of Stevenson's. And what, what's unique about the uh, the Hetton Railway is it's the first track. It's eight miles long. It's basically built to get coal uh, to the River Weir from the Pit Head, but it's the first one that uses entirely locomotive power rather than horsepower. It doesn't and it's still quite, exist. Uh, there's parts of it still exist, yeah, and uh, there's a there's a there's a number of bicentenary events taking place this year to record that. So it was a real breakthrough. But of course, Stevenson and his son Robert were involved in some of the the mining engineering at the same time to penetrate beyond the magnesium layer uh, underneath Hetton to get at the riches of the coal underneath, which was it, that alone was seen as an, an amazing engineering breakthrough. And then they invented the the locomotive and the railway line to go with it as well. So they were real pioneers. And so at what point do we have the, does he start doing the, the stuff that he's really famous? You know, there's a Ladybird book. The um, Rocket. The Rocket. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. The Liverpool-Manchester and, line. And the sort there. of, um, well, we're going to, uh, so the first you have the Stockton and Darlington Railway. Yeah. That, does that come before Liverpool-Manchester? It does, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, 1825. So yeah. what's the story there, Dan? Well, it's a similar one. They want they need to get the coal out of the fairly isolated uh, part of southwest Durham around Bishop Auckland, Shield, and that sort of area. And they want to export it out of the Tees, uh, the River Tees. So they construct a railway uh, between, they call it the Stockton and Darlington, but it goes a bit further than that inland towards the, the colliery districts. And uh, Stevenson's given the job. He builds the famous uh, locomotive called Locomotion, um, <laughs> is that is that why here's the question is that why all locomotives are called locomotives from that name or were they already called locomotives that's a good question you I'm not going to go to the Bodleian 
and research yeah. that. I'll yeah. have to look that up in the Bodleian. Uh, <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean it must be called locomotive. They must be called locomotive engines because they're generating locomotion. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And um, what's unique about this one? What it was that it wasn't just pulling freight, which the previous uh, colliery railways had done. This one, they attached a, um, a passenger carriage, which they called the Experiment. And so people rode along. Uh, you wouldn't want... Uh, <laughs> all aboard the experiment. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> but but the, did, um, did anything go wrong? No, no. It was a, so it was it, all it was fine. A, and so that's what, is, is that what then gives him the idea for... Well, it's what makes his name, because it's such a, um, uh, a, a successful... Um, and it's the longest... I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact distance of the Stockton and Darlington. It's... it's um, Maybe I should really Google that while we're talking, but Off it's, it's yeah, it's um, a number of miles between. I think it's around about, around about twenty miles distance, and you know I, I would locate this in. You know I think I talked when we were last on about the Northumbrian Enlightenment, which takes place did, roughly yes, the same time as the Scottish Enlightenment, and um, in a moment that I think we could only describe as sacral. Um, oh, Dan! That was shameless. <laughs> the no. engine. The, I the thought fire. we were safe from that in a <laughs> railways podcast. The the fire in the engine of locomotion is lit from the rays of the sun. Oh yes, by the engine driver's pipe glass, which is a little sort of magnifying glass that people used to use to light their pipes. That is, I love that. That's great. How romantic's that? That's fabulous, isn't it? So he, he makes his name on the Stockton and Darlington, and then we're get heading into the Rainhill Trials and the Liverpool and Manchester Railway. So they've set up that railway, and they're what? They're running trials to find out the best engine? Is that basically what that is? Have yeah, they, that want right? a, they want an efficient, commercially viable means. Who's they? It's the, it's the, 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 the business community, you might say, of, of Manchester and of Liverpool. Manchester and Liverpool, which is the real kind of cockpit of... And so they, the 19th century. So, so they, they, they have been looking at what Stevenson's been doing, have they? Yeah. And thinking yeah. we can, we can carry passengers as well as freight from Manchester to Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, the, the, particularly the freight aspect again, because of the uh, textile industry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the raw Going material to the comes to Liverpool. Yeah. It um, and it. Uh, but 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 the passenger element of it is important as well, right? I mean that that's yeah. And it's it's sometimes overlooked, but actually, by the early nineteenth century, the road network in in Britain is pretty advanced. You know, you had the advances of um, the invention of um, tarmac and tarmac macadamized roads yeah. and all that sort of thing. But they were increasingly congested. They were still pretty slow because, again, it's horse drawn carriages and so on. So they were looking for a mass transit system, I suppose you'd call it, uh, between these two vitally important in, uh, industrial and economic centres. And hence the uh, the Rainhill Trials, which Stevenson submits and enters uh, an engine called the Rocket, uh, which is actually designed by his son Robert, who is is just in, in fact an even more impressive engineer in many respects. And that wins the the trial um, in eight, this is eighteen twenty nine, and Rocket reaches a top speed of twenty nine miles an hour, which yeah. is just no one had ever nobody so nobody had ever gone that fast. Never. No human not, had ever gone that fast. No, no. You know, a horse can't gallop that fast. It's just incredible. Because you read the mm. um, the accounts of it, and and people are 
kind of blown away, aren't they? Yeah, they're I mean, kind they, of swooning, aren't they? They um, can't comprehend it. I mean, so, so even uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, I mean, much, much later, and he has his famous phrase, faster than fairies, faster than witches. Just kind of a sense of the almost supernatural awe. Yeah. yeah. Dare I say sacral? Uh, <laughs> we've had it already. It's not sacral. It's, no, it's, that battle it's, is lost. You might as well just kind say of it. Eer- it's an eeriness. The quality of the eerie, isn't it? And Yeah. I, so that's why, presumably, the part. I mean, the the, the sense of excitement um, at the speed is is presumably one reason why the opening of that railway, which is a year later in eighteen thirty, mm. is this colossal public occasion. I mean, yeah. one of the great Victorian public occasions in some ways. And who comes to that opening event? Well, it's the, I mean, Dan will know this. So the Prime Minister. I mean, it's big enough that the Prime Minister goes right, the Duke of yeah. Wellington. Yeah. I mean, going back, to, we talked about the Napoleonic we've got Wars. Blue Curtain, mm. and we've got You've, Wellington. Yeah, we've got the hero mm. of the wars who is now you know, a very sort of reactionary prime minister. He pitches up, doesn't he? And you have this amazing scene, which enshrines the railways, I think. I th- I would say more than anything else in the public imagination, mm. because you've got the very first trial of this passenger railway, and somebody dies. Dan, do you want to tell the story? Well, I think you know the gory details, don't you, Dominic, uh, about the, the the MP for Liverpool. Was I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy stories <laughs> about... You know, Namings and oh, sorry, yeah, <laughs> I enjoyed that. I, I think they're very good stories for children, and of course, mm. you know, if all in all good bookshops, you will find excellent history books yes. these days for children, which we don't need to go into. So there's a fellow called um, his name is Huskisson. It's William Huskisson, isn't it? And he is a he's been a sort of frontline politician, but he he wasn't a great ally of the Duke of Wellington. So he's stepped back a bit since the Duke of Wellington became PM, and he's been ill. And he think, but and his doctors actually say to him, "Don't go to the opening of this." He just railway. had surgery, hadn't he? He just had surgery for a kidney, yeah. and he's a very clumsy man. <laughs> yes, that's going to be. He's always falling crucial. over and losing his balance, which is an important <laughs> aspect of the yeah. story. Um, so he goes specially because he wants to get in with. He's the MP for Liverpool as well. I mean, that's a crucial part of it. So it's expected that he's there. So he goes and he goes in this special train that's been built for the Duke of Wellington and all his guests. And that train is pulled by this. You'll enjoy this, Dan, if you don't know it already, by a locomotive called the Northumbrian. The Northumbrian. <laughs> How good is that? <laughs> uh, so that's being driven by Stevenson himself, by George Stevenson. Um, Could there be and- anything more Northumbrian than? Uh, George it's, Stevenson driving so there, a train kind of, called the Northumbrian. It's chugging along and it stops at a place called Parkside, which is a station called Parkside, which is near St. Helens. And uh, there Huskisson gets out and lots of people kind of go down the track to shake hands with the Duke of Wellington, who presumably is leaning out of his compartment or they're kind of leaning in or something. And um, Huskisson goes and does this. It's very important to him that he can shake hands with Wellington and kind of bury the hatchet or whatever. It's like I, it's like sort of if Jeremy Hunt was on a train with Boris Johnson, he goes on the track to shake hands with him or something. Um, and then they see the rocket coming the other way, and the, the tracks are quite close together, aren't they? I think there's about four or five feet between the tracks. So the rocket is coming the other way, and somebody says, an engine is approaching. Take care, gentlemen. Mind the gap. Ba- yeah, basically mind the gap. <laughs> And most of the people who are sort of loitering about immediately get off the track. But Huskisson, and this is where you're clumsy, he's clumsy. <laughs> so, so unaccountably, rather like sort of Inspector Clouseau style or something, he falls, he keeps falling over. I, I read Bodden Library. He made, um, he made, uh, two attempts to get off the track, but kept kind of falling back onto it. 
So the train, the rocket the hilarity is getting, ensues. The rocket is getting closer and closer, and people are sort of saying, "For God's sake, man, get off the tracks!" And he's just falling over and shambling about. And eventually, there's this terrible scene where he decides that the 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 way to he he could have flattened himself against the Duke of Wellington's train, and there was enough space to to for the other train, the rocket, to pass. But what he ends up doing is sort of trying to get into the Duke of Wellington's carriage. And then it turns into something from almost like a Bond film. So he's, he grabs the, um, people sort of trying to drag him in. But Duke of Wellington actually says to him, we seem to be going on. You'd better step in. So, so this sort of great meeting with the prime minister hasn't quite, you know, at this not point going to plan, not, not really going to plan. <laughs> you know, he's sort of embarrassing himself in front of the prime minister. Huskisson tries to clamber into the carriage, but but he doesn't make it. And some people, he's going to falls backwards again. Somebody shouts to him, for God's sake, Mr. Huskisson, be firm. And at that point, Huskisson grabs the door of the carriage. And just as the rocket reaches him, the door swings open with him on it into the path of the rocket. And he falls down on the track and the rocket runs over his legs. And um, you know what he says? He says they 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 run and pick him up, and he says, uh, "Very sort of Shakespearean, you know." I am slain. He says, uh, "It's all over with me. Bring my wife, and I may die." And, and they, he does. And it, well, yeah. he does eventually. The weird thing is that people said that he 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 didn't seem that hurt at first, and the train did less damage to his legs than people thought was likely. That's kind so of a weird right, thing, isn't it, with the Duke of Wellington and people losing their legs? <laughs> <laughs> Lord, who's, who's again? Uxbridge, isn't it? Yeah, Lord Uxbridge. My God, sir, I've lost my leg. Good God, sir. So you have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically, the lesson of this story is never stand next to the Duke of Wellington. Because you're going to lose your legs. Yes. <laughs> but, but the new, is it right, Dominic, that the impact of this is yeah. so huge that weirdly it acts as a kind of amazing advert? Right. For- so you would think, this is the weird thing about this story, you would think people wouldn't want to get on the train after this but no the 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 mad for it the, the railway is absolutely deluged with people afterwards isn't that right dan yeah yeah it's an enormous success it's it's a it's a sensation isn't it it's because it's so exciting it's attracting all these vips right from the very start you so, too yes. could lose your legs have, you have I, I know i mentioned this i think in the industrial revolution episode we did but have, have either of you seen a documentary called the day the world took off which is no. about it's about the day the, the rocket goes on its first journey along the, the Manchester-Liverpool railway. And it it it, pin, it kind of identifies it as the, the key moment when the you know, industrial world gets lift off. And it has these wonderfully kind of formalised scenes of the rocket going past horses, people throwing their toppers in the air. Tom, you played... It, it's you, so good. It's you so good. The Duke of, you played William of Normandy... On yes, screen, haven't you? Yeah. I think you'd be an excellent Duke of Wellington. Oh, thanks, Dominic. Yes. I think if you were that, we could reenact it. You could be Wellington. Yeah. I think Dan you could is be obviously. Huskisson. Yeah, I, I believe and, Huskisson. And Dan would be Isabel Brunel. Well, no, Dan. Well, I'd be, I think he'd be George, George Stevenson. George, George Stevenson. Yes, okay. Yeah, he'd be George Stevenson. I think it would be absolutely splendid. I think once the rest of his history moves on to film, yes, that should be our first production. Well, I okay. So uh, when will we three meet again? <laughs> I think when we do meet. We should definitely stage yes. the death of um, William Huskisson. Yeah. yeah, let's do and that I at think... the station and see how, how it goes. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> uh, I think on that um, 
on that stunning note, uh, we should possibly take a break here. And when we come back, uh, we should look at um, the explosive growth of the railways in Victorian Britain. See you in a minute. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on the rest of history, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Let the great world spin forever down the ringing grooves of change. That was um, Alfred Tennyson in his 1842 poem, Loxley Hall. Um, and it's one of the, the kind of the lines that sums up the sense of dynamism and change and growth that Victorian Britain represented. Um, but it was actually founded on a complete misapprehension. Um, uh, Tennyson wrote, when I went by the first train from Liverpool to Manchester in 1830, I thought that the wheels ran in a groove. It was a black night and there was such a vast crowd round the train at the station that we could not see the wheels. And then I made this line. So, Dan, um, the fact that Tennyson gets it so wrong gives you a kind of brilliant sense of just how novel and strange this technology that we're seeing showcased in 1830 with Stevenson and the rocket and everything, just how strange it was to people. It was strange. It was thrilling. It was incredibly exciting. And I've got a a passage from uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's kind of blank verse poem, Aurora Lee, which was written in the uh, 1850s. And there's almost a slightly sexual tinge to a lot of this. Yeah. I'll warn listeners to brace themselves for this because she's she's writing about, the th- and this, if anyone's seen the final scene of North by Northwest with Cary Grant, which I saw recently laughed out loud. Oh, yes. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, she's writing about the tunnels that she travelled through. We might get onto the kind of the civil engineering aspect of this in a moment. So she writes, and shot through tunnels like a lightning wedge by great Thor hammers driven through the rock, which, quivering through the intestine blackness, splits and lets in at once the train swept in a throb with effort. 
trembling with resolve, the fierce denouncing whistle wailing on and dying off smothered in the shuddering dark while we, self-awed, drew troubled breath, oppressed as other titans underneath the pile, a nightmare of the mountains out at last to catch the dawn afloat upon the land. I mean, blimey. That's great stuff. That's yes. like the Meg Ryan scene when <laughs> Harry met Sally. <laughs> it's amazing. But because the the, uh, the Liverpool to Manchester line had some pretty formidable civil engineering challenges to overcome itself. You know, the, all the mosses of South Lancashire, the marshy ground and, and so on. But then you start to see through figures like Robert Stevenson, who I mentioned earlier, who um, yeah. uh, did have an education unlike his father. In fact, George Stevenson was known as Geordie Stevenson because men in the Northeast called George get that nickname. Um, one of the more plausible origins, I think, of the Geordie descriptor for people from the Northeast is because George was had to go down to Parliament to give evidence often for railway building schemes to get Act of Parliament through. And people couldn't understand him. So th- they would mock his Geordie accent. Uh, oh, so, so there's oh, other right. theories that it was because of loyalty to the, the Hanoverian Georges in the Jacobite rebellions, and or it was it was George Stevenson's miner's lamp, which is known as a Geordie lamp. But I quite like this one. So he took care to make sure that Robert Stevenson had a proper gentleman's education, Edinburgh University, and so on. And he had, he was a bit more refined than than old Geordie. But uh, Robert Stevenson was one of these pioneers of of civil engineering you know the Killsby tunnels outside uh, Birmingham which were described as the greatest civil engineering project since the building of the great pyramids um all these embankments and earthworks and viaducts and bridges just incredible so, so Dan how, who 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 is who is paying for this i mean how where is the, the money coming from it and how is it that these lines are being laid well, the source of the capitalism, there's an interesting and pretty lively debate at the moment that this about slavery, slavery yes, it's, it's, um, that, yeah. that, that, that the, the payoffs to former slave owners, many of, much of that capital found its way in, in, in investment into the railways. But there's also a growing middle class that are looking for places to invest their money. There's the industrialists themselves who can see the commercial advantages of much better communications. And... So, but but so, but you've so you've got the um the, the Manchester Liverpool one, but then is it other companies are, are saying that's a great idea? Let's we yeah, want a exactly. bit of this, and we'll start building our exactly yes. So so there's a lot of and is there any regulation? No, it's a bit of a free for all to be honest. And you start to get these piratical figures emerging, like George Hudson, the railway king. There's no guiding hand really over the development of these. I mean, major major. Um, uh, civil engineering projects and building of railways require acts of parliament, but it's there's there's no central planning to this, and that's one of the things that start to perturb Robert Stevenson, who could see that this was becoming a bit of a a bit of a mess potentially. And there's also the lively debates about the standard gauge, a uh, standard gauge. Sorry, right? Okay, um, so it's so the the Stevenson one is narrow, isn't it? And then yeah, it's four foot eight and a half inches, um, which is people have said, isn't it co- a coincidence that it's the same width as chariot wheels and so on, but Basically, they were they were u- using horse-drawn vehicles as the prototypes for their carriages, so it's pretty inevitable that it's going to be that width. Whereas Brunel favoured the, the broad gauge, which was, I think, now almost seven feet wide. And going back to the Acts of Parliament, I mean, that's obviously a massive bonanza for corruption, isn't it? Because basically you need somebody to introduce a bill on your behalf to allow you as the capitalist, as the, as the, the railway baron, to get the land, to get the right. Well, we, so to we've the got land. Dominic. We've got a question from Queequeg on uh, the Discord. 
which you get if you're a member of the Rest of History Club. Oh, very good sensational, advertising. Sensational very good um, How did railroads gain right of way through private land? Was this a politicised process? Did corruption occur? I imagine corruption did occur, did it? Yeah, I mean, it was a, that was, there were huge scandals, weren't there? In the sort of, there was this sort of sense in the mid-19th century, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but that politics had been, you know, that the, the interests of the kind of the, the, the entrepreneurs, the railway entrepreneurs, had, had enmeshed with, you know, the sort of parliamentary bigwigs who were just sort of pocketing money in mm. order to push through these bills. Isn't that right, Yeah, Dan? pretty much a lot. Money was changing hands uh, legitimately and illegitimately, I think. And and, and also the, the aristocracy cottoned on to the fact. Initially, I think many of them were quite hostile to what's this, you know, coming across my land. But the value of just p- pure agricultural land, if it didn't have mineral resources underneath, it was declining. But actually, access rights over your land, like the Earls of Derby outside Liverpool, you know, they're great Lancashire barons, they made a packet from, um, you know, having that access over their land. So it's a bit of a bonanza. Because it- apparently, um, initially, when they were uh, mapping out the line of the Liverpool-Manchester railway, the, the surveyors um, took a posse of prize fighters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a good story. Yeah. To do what? <laughs> to, like, punch up sort of... Well, to, to guard them, to protect them. Yeah. Well, obviously, because there's the, a lot the, of the landed interests were so hostile. There is resistance. Then, as Dan says, there. I mean, famously, around. there are places like Cambridge where the railway station is quite a way out of the town centre because basically people wanted to keep out at arm's length. And that quote from Middlemarch, you know, there are a lot of people who were always, you know, one of the sort of subplots of Middlemarch is hostility to the railways. The I think the, the thought that it's going to bring modernity, but but that being a bad thing destroy your community and all that sort of stuff there is a bit of that isn't there in the mid-19th century but it's interesting how quickly that is overcome and that you know having a grand station is seen as the kind of sine qua non of any any uh self-respecting victorian town um and and that that brings us to the the extraordinary building boom that's associated with the railways um if you think about well inevitably i'm going to say this the first great railway station is newcastle the first great iron, <laughs> iron kind of railway shed, the, those kind of elegant um, struts over the, over the railway lines themselves with the grand neoclassical frontage by John Dobson. And it is like a cathedral with the kind of nave and iron. Like a cathedral, Dan. Like a cathedral. Yes. Did you yes. hear that, Dominic? I did hear that, yeah. It's sacral I hope like a nave. over it, but no. Very much. <laughs> and if you ever, you know, the, the confidence of the Victorians as well, if you if you pulled out a Newcastle station heading north, and you notice how it, the the line skims the the Norman castle, the new castle. They almost knocked it down, yeah. but it kind of works. It's just the Victorians just well, in Berwick. Yeah. I mean, in Berwick, the the station's built in the middle of the castle. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of amazing. On platform three, there's a kind of sign saying, "This is where Edward the First awarded the throne <laughs> yeah. to John yeah, Balliol." Yeah. <laughs> Would you like it's a coffee? Right, it? yeah. kind of, and I I just wondered specifically about London, which obviously is is the largest city in the world so there's a lot of kind of a you know it's it's quite it's one thing to build a, a railway across empty fields but to build it across inhabited land such as you have in london and dominic um quoted the uh, uh middlemarch but one of the other famous passages from victorian literature describing this process is at the beginning of dombey and son where dickens describes the railway going through camden and the kind of process of destruction and again it's that is, is that a kind of, uh, presumably it's not kind of centrally organised. This, again, is private companies just bulldozing their way through. I think it, I think it's private companies. I don't know what Dan thinks. I think, I mean, you've got, what, 
scores, hundreds, well, more than 100 private companies by the end of the 19th century. And if you think about Tommy in London. So they're building Euston. But you think about arch, the- Which is the largest art, largest classical arch yeah, in the world. Yeah, these aren't built by central government. Central government doesn't really have the, it doesn't really have the, the ambition, the kind of the, the apparatus. I mean, central government doesn't do these. These things are done by private interests in the Victorian period. I mean, let's take the underground. I mean, obviously the, another, you know, one of the most emblematic railways of all, the underground lines develop. I mean, the reason the underground map is, is as it is, is because they develop through private interests, completely higgledy piggledy, completely unplanned, yeah. duplicating each other, you know, stations with the same name that are two different stations or stations that are basically the same station with two different names, you know, just a shambolic process. And that is all through the late 19th century. You have people, I mean, there's always to- talk about nationalization. So from the late from the second half of the 19th century onwards and, and people are saying of, of monopolization yeah so. and people well they start to combine because actually railways become a bit less profitable as time goes on so you stop making so much money after about but in the heyday i mean i read that they were more valuable than the east india company they are but there's a big or, boom and bust isn't there dan isn't there a big sort of the 1840s is the railway mania, railway mania. There's, and a, then, there's a huge bubble that eventually the, over these stocks that everyone's buying have become overvalued and there is a crash at the end of the 1840s where much of that kind of free free form messy sort of growth of the railways it it, it coincides with that period but then there's there's a sense of government taking starting to step in you've got voices like robert stevenson arguing for some direction to this some standardization and interestingly as well you know some of the things we talked about about the obliteration of of um of time, speed of time through the speed of the railways, you get things like the standardisation of time itself, which you know yeah. your railway timetables obviously rely on the country moving to a standardised system of of time, which is an amazing thought, really, because before then it was it was a kind of laissez-faire attitude. So we the adoption standard adoption of Greenwich Mean Time across the whole of the country as part of that rational progress of the Victorian age is a part of that story, definitely, um, as well as the time. You know, be, before, um, was it A.J.P. Taylor who said that up until the Napoleonic Wars, it basically took Napoleon the same length of time as it would Caesar to get from Rome to Paris and vice versa. Whereas after that, you know, I think before they built the high-level bridge over the Tyne to connect it uh, with Newcastle Station, um, you could get, in the 1840s, you could get from London to Gateshead in about, uh, I think it's nine hours. That's just extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. Considering it would have taken four days, something like that. But but Dan, you were saying um, about the gauges, that that complicates it. Uh, and apparently there's, so, so the, the great railway timetable is Bradshaw's. This guy Bradshaw develops it. And Punch has one of its many rib ticklers, where it says that the, the only volume more complex than Bradshaw's was the catalogue of the Great Exhibition. <laughs> but presumably part of the reason for that is that you've got all these different companies so they're all they've all got kind of different you know very difficult to kind of mesh them but also that you have these different gauges and you're going along you come to a different gauge you have to get off get on another train a bit like um spain and france was for a long time yes and the indian railways were always broader i think so 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 and and the, the great figure who who broadens the gauge is brunel so just how does Brunel fit into this story? Because he is kind of the absolute, you know, if Stevenson is is the archetype of the early age of the railways. Brunel is the archetype of of the the kind of 
the heroic heyday. Well, he is, but he's he, he's quite a useful civil engineer, but he's not a great actual engineer compared to Robert Stevenson, who would who would often lock horns with him. They were good friends. They were good. They were kind of commercial rivals to an extent. But it was it was Robert Stevenson arguing for the narrow gauge, and he won out. Uh, um, Brunel was arguing, was experimenting with things called, they, did they call it the atmospheric railway, which is kind of a complicated system of pressure to propel trains along rather than using um, basically, you know, coal power and steam lo- locomotion. So he's often going on these flights of fancy that the very pragmatic and hard-headed Robert Stevens would, would just be sitting shaking his head going, what's he doing now? Um, but you mentioned the Great Exhibition, Tom, which is a useful segue into what the railway's um, ushered in was kind of mass spectator events. I mean, mm. Dominic mentioned London Underground. The London Underground so old that some of the first passengers on it went to watch public hangings. In New <laughs> That's an amazing detail. That's an amazing detail. But you know what? what? A marble art. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Newgate, that bit around Farringdon, you know, around there. Oh, right. Um, but well, Farringdon's a very, very early one, isn't it? Yes. And then, that, that stretch. But you've got events like the Great Exhibition itself. That wouldn't have been possible without the railways. Course, not just getting yeah, all the the, the ex- exhibitions themselves, ex- exhibits themselves down to London, but the, the paying public as well. And it was a huge success. And if you think about those great, I mean, the Euston Arch is like a triumphal arch. Some some people have yeah. described it as it. You know, the north is arriving literally in London. You know, with that light, the, the stations, King's Cross, Euston, St Pancras, is it? It's quite a statement, isn't it? It's quite an architectural. But see, I think yeah. I think the railways um, are the I mean, you you use the expression the sine qua non. I think they are the absolute building block for some of the things we talked about in previous episodes of this podcast. So the idea of a national culture. We had a whole ep- we did an episode we did episodes about football and cricket. You know, let's take take football. Football is a mass spectator sport in which people will follow their team to the cup final. Yes. You know, and those scenes that you get in sort of early twentieth century England of the whole population of Bolton you know, descending on London or something. They are utterly unthinkable without the mass transit possibilities of the railway. And I would argue that what the railway, I mean, the railway is key to me in modern nationalism and the modern national sort of modern national identity in the nation state, because it creates a sense of a sort of collective story and a collective culture that would be much, that and the telegraph and the kind of development of a national mass media Without yeah. those things, and and, the, and by the way, you wouldn't get the national mass media without the railways because you wouldn't be able to get the newspapers yeah. to different parts of the country so quickly. I mean, I think you without that, and also, railways, of course, you don't get any of that. Also, of course, if you're a consulting det- private consulting detective in London, you wouldn't be able to get to Dartmoor <laughs> to solve mysterious right. crimes yeah. involving giant hounds. I think it's fair to say that about 70% of our podcast episodes depend upon the railways and the others are all your Greek <laughs> yeah. ones. Or, yeah. or another interesting footnote, you the national culture point's an interesting one, Dominic. Um, William Henry Smith, key figure, because he spots the opportunity to sell newspapers, periodicals, books, on the from pl- Northumbria. He's not, but he oh. founds W.H. Smith that we... It's now a slightly shabby high street presence. <laughs> but back in the Victorian age, they were, they'd spotted that it was quite easy to read on trains. And so, that you know, that national sense of everywhere you go, you see W.H. Smith, they used to be literally on the platform and then they then they moved out into kind of the, the, the streets roundabout stations. But that, Obviously, the commuter. Yeah, the commuter. The commuter is a Metro railway land. creation. Yeah. I mean, people aren't riding their horse into London, you know, to the office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it's, the, it's the invention of suburbia, isn't it? It's only possible. The urbanisation itself, you might say, goes hand in hand with the suburbs and you need to be able to travel in. That, that's the other great Victorian invention as well, of course, is the seaside holiday. You know, Blackpool, yes, Scarborough, even places like Tynemouth and Whitley Bay in my part of the world, you know, be, become easy to get to from the urban centres by train. And, and the amazing thing is that, um, although in Britain, uh, Mr. Beeching, Dr. is it Dr. Beeching? Yes, Dr. Um, Beeching. Kind of cut it all, that by the late 19th century, the railway reaches almost everywhere in Britain. Mm. I mean, you can get almost anywhere you want by train. Mm. Completely. So that might be a good place, I think, at which to end this episode. Because, I, I, I Dan, you're intention of doing the whole sweep into the 21st century is heroic. Tom, he wasn't he wasn't even going to do the whole he wasn't going to do the whole period he was going to do the world yeah yeah so so we so we focused entirely on britain here but obviously there is a, a story going on uh in the on the continental europe obviously in america with the railroads uh in india um lots to lot the orient express and all that kind of stuff so there's lots more to talk about um would would you be willing to come back in six months or so and we do the railways part two absolutely uh, absolutely uh, and if you could just pay for my research trips on the orient express and so on <laughs> i'll uh, i'll get back to you well, i think well, the key I, thing I, is I, he I, needs I, to wear a, he needs to wear a different hat <laughs> yeah, yeah, a homburg well, or something like that well maybe. dan i'm <laughs> yeah. assuming that it will still all revolve around newcastle and New- i'll Dunbar, squeeze so i don't really that. see <laughs> that, <laughs> that you need to why do you have a nosebleed if you <laughs> <laughs> start going off to foreign clients. Can I just mention one thing we didn't touch on, perhaps George Stevenson's greatest legacy. Um, do you know what it was? Do you know what his culinary gift was to the world? No. Oh, is it something, uh, some sort of Northeastern food stuff? What's it going to be? No, it's even more widespread than that. It's the straight cucumber. Oh, we have, good one. <laughs> we, have jo- we have George Stevenson to thank for the straight cucumber. He's a very, like a lot of Northumbrian men, he was a keen allotment gardener and and cucumbers used to grow curly. And he had a great rivalry with Paxton, the gardener at... Um, yeah, great exhibition again. Yes, indeed. And basically, um, Stevenson had the lads at his engine, engineering workshop in Newcastle knock up his cucumber straight. And it just looks like a, a, a glass condom, which you, you, get, you grow your cucumbers in before that. But hold on, has that... So, I'm thinking about modern cucumbers. Yeah. Are they still doing Do people, this? Yeah, are they growing them in glass condoms. I don't know if there's been some sort of genetic change in, that after years of growing them in this way, they just naturally grow in straight lines. No, there's a cucumbers have a kind of folk memory. Of, uh, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if been, it's been bred into them now, but certainly we've got George Stevenson to thank for the straight cucumber. Wow. So wow. we can have Dan back for the railways and for the history <laughs> of the cucumbers. Just, just salads generally. <laughs> Dan, thanks so much. My pleasure. Um, absolute joy as ever. Uh, and we will we'll welcome you back in six months or so to do Railways Part 2. Look forward to that. Thanks so much. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dan. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.